Welcome everyone to Breaking Big Blue. I'm your host Jordan Ron on ESPN, ESPN.com, Giants reporter, and we're back here for another episode. And a lot's happened since we've last been on, right? The, the, the Giants coaching staff has filled out. We'll get to that in a few minutes. And Eli Manning has retired, right? And there was a nice ceremony. It was very interesting. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna get into that. We're gonna get into deep into the Eli retirement. Moving on, we're gonna reminisce a little bit. We're gonna talk about. The full Giants coaching staff under Joe Judge, we now get an idea. And the next order of business, which is the cuts, the guys on the roster right now that are most likely to get released now in, let's say, the next, uh, we're here sitting at the beginning of February. So in the next month or so, I, I still think, and I know people ask me about it a lot, and I made a and I gave a couple my opinion on a couple things and kind of got aggregated into the Giants are going to try and sign this guy. Look, we're still early in that process. They just finished putting together this coaching staff pretty much last week, right? The coaching staff now has to build their systems, get together with the scouting staff, and then they're going to have to decide who fits into what they're going to try and do. So I don't think there's a definitive, they're going to try and sign this guy. Or they're trying to sign that guy right now. We're not even at that point yet. Give it a few weeks. The NFL Combine, the end of February, that's when things will start getting moving. That's when we'll have a real idea of the direction this team is going to head. In the meantime, let's pay a little homage or homage, however you want to pronounce it, to Eli Manning. Okay? His career is now over. Officially. He had a retirement ceremony. Very nice affair, by the way. And I thought it was interesting that Eli Manning, and we got word of this a couple days before it was going to go down, that there was going to be this big uh, sort of ceremony, and Eli was going to announce his retirement and sort of just walk away, only playing for one team, 16 years, a great career. And look, you guys all know I've been critical of him the past few years. And really, I'll talk about it in a second. There's been two parts of Eli's career, one which was great before I got there and the second half which wasn't so great when I got there. It kind of coincided with that or close to it. I was probably a year after it started to go downhill. Um, But two Super Bowls, 16 years, an incredible record of durability. Like This is a great career. He's ultimately, in my opinion, going to end up getting into the Hall of Fame. That will be a debate we get to later. Five years from now, I think a lot of that, especially the you know people say he's a first timer, he's not a first timer, will depend on who's eligible that first year. Let's see if Adam Vinatieri retires, if Frank Gore retires, if uh, um, is there a, Greg Olson ends up retiring. I don't know, guys like that, or Drew Brees, Tom Brady, who doesn't seem to have any desire to retire, but if any of those guys decided to retire, now they'd be in that same class as Eli five years from now when the debate starts on him of, okay, here's the guys. But if Eli Manning is not, does not have that competition, the chance that he gets in in the first time is now greater, right? Because five guys are going to get in. And if his class isn't that strong in the first year, yes, there's some leftover guys going along. But if they're leftover, they're not the slam dunk guys anyway. So Eli Manning will then move up that list and have a decent chance to get in the first time. So we'll get to that in a little bit. But let's talk about his you know, retirement ceremony and his career and seriously the great things that he did with the Giants. Because 
really with the last few years was the end of his career. This has happened to a lot, a lot of people's end of their career. You know, the play falls off a little bit naturally. And it, it, the best years are rarely ever the final few years. Like John Elway might have won two Super Bowls to go out the door, but John Elway at his best was not those last two years. He just happened to be on a great team at the end of his career. Peyton Manning ended up being on a great team at the end of his career, won a Super Bowl and walked away. Another player who, same thing, Michael Strahan. He wasn't the same player as Michael Strahan in his prime, but he won that Super Bowl in the final year, was able to sort of step away. Eli, not so lucky. But two Super Bowls, two Super Bowl MVPs. He's on a list of think about this. This, to me, is really what's special about Eli Manning. And, you know, you could debate whether he deserved you know, those Super Bowl MVPs, right? What they, both times they held the, the Patriots to 17 points or whatever, or under 20 points. So, but two time Super Bowl MVP, right? For a guy who's been a great player throughout his career. Now, maybe not the best quarterback in the league, you know, in any regular season. I, we could all say that, I think, with pretty definitively. You know, he played in an era with Brett Favre originally, and then it turned to, Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady and Peyton, his brother Peyton the whole time, pretty much. And they were all, let's be honest, better quarterbacks. We know that. Drew Brees, ultimately, better career even, even though you know him and Aaron Rodgers have fewer championships. Those guys' careers in the regular season, greater than Eli Manning. But two Super Bowl titles, two Super Bowl MVPs. He's on a list with guys like Bart Starr. Joe Montana, right? Joe Montana, Bart Starr, uh, Terry Bradshaw, and Tom Brady. That's the list. And then Eli Manning. Those guys. When you're on a list with those guys at that level, you've done something. And you've done something special. And the way that it all went down against those Patriots teams, the best of the best Patriots team the first time. Right? That was huge. Huge. That was about to be an undefeated team in today's NFL in a 16 game season, right? Then they won two playoff games. So they were 18 and 0. Probably the greatest team that Tom Brady's ever been on. And Eli Manning and the Giants beat him with the helmet catch in that one, with the Manningham throw in the second one. So, really, just a special career. And what I love about. Eli Manning, and look, I will say this about a lot of guys. You, you, I have a lot of, you know, most players, you end up with their phone number somewhere along the lines. You, you need, you, you're working together, you're doing stuff, you end up doing a project. Eli Manning was a different beast, right? He was just, he didn't want the spotlight. He just wanted to fly under the radar. I never had his phone number, you know, and, this is just so him. His retirement press conference, which essentially is all about him. There's no other way to put it. It's your retirement press conference. His goal throughout that, and I heard this beforehand, was to make it short and sweet, and he didn't really want to make it a lot about him. How do you go into your retirement press conference and not want to make it about you? That's what it is. There's no way around that. So that's why, I mean, you, Eli Manning spoke. His speech was less than six minutes. He wanted to make it short and sweet. I heard he told his brothers not to come. He didn't want, he just wanted to, to, to sort of get it out of the way, make it, you know, memorable, but 
Not, you know, nothing fancy, nothing outlandish, nothing long. He didn't want to get emotional. That was a big thing to him. He just wanted to try to get in and out without getting too emotional. And for the most part, he did that. And that's just Eli Manning. And I'll, I'll get to him a little bit more later. He's a guy who, and I'll remember this. I remember this distinctly. St. Anthony's with, uh, Bobby Hurley Sr. had an event. And it was, and I went to it and it was at, uh, Liberty State Park. Okay, Liberty National Park, whatever it's called, you know, in Jersey City. So you go there, and Eli's coming, and the star quarterback, the New York Giants, just shows up by himself and wanders in and does his thing, and you know, in and out, you know, stays the whole whatever most of the time, and nobody with him, no security, no PR people. I mean, that was so Eli Manning. He, his wall, he did a walk with uh, for charity every year in Manhattan. Right, shows up by himself, does the walk. No, no hubbub, no entourage, no handlers. Just it's such that that's so typical of Eli Manning. It kind of describes who he is. He just wanted to go, be part of the guys, do his thing, you know, work. I mean, he wanted to play, but he knew the situation as it was. He wasn't going to be able to go and be a starter. There's not a lot of teams looking for 39-year-old starters who haven't, you know, haven't exactly had great years the past few seasons. So he realized he he took the temperature of the room, and I, this is I give him a lot of credit for this. Most guys are unable to do this. He took the temperature of the room, and he said, "You know what? It's best for me to just walk away. I got a family. I have four kids. They're all young. I'm not going to go play and pick in a place." You know, Chicago and commuting back and forth to his family. Then you're not really fully committed to your team and just trying to hang on and get one more year and one more run out of it. But no, he read the room. He read the room correctly and just decided to step away. And perfect timing. Made the Giants happy. Only played for one team. Archie Manning actually told me many times. And it was he always used to preface it with, this is my opinion. I just don't see Eli ever playing for another teammate. And ultimately, he ended up being right. So, you know, we'll get more into Eli and how that whole thing went down. Uh, I ended up breaking the story along with Dan Graziano that he was going to retire. We'll get into that and how that all went down a little bit later. And a little more about Eli Manning with our guest this week, which will be Chris Canty. Because Chris Canty has that firsthand personal experience with Eli. And he also has a firsthand personal experience with Jason Garrett. Who is on this new coaching staff, which I'm going to get into right now, right? Because that was, I'm taping this on Wednesday, right? February 5th or whatever it is. And the Giants finally made their staff official. Okay. Now we know exactly where everybody is and what their title is. Nothing too surprising. Most of it has come out over the past previous week or two beforehand, beforehand. And, but let's just go over some of the things. Okay, that are important here. Jason Garrett, the offensive coordinator. We'll get into that with Canty in, in a few minutes because he has he played in Dallas when Jay, when Jason Garrett was there, and then he came to the Giants and played against Jason Garrett's offense. So he knows what it's like. Uh, the you know the, the at least the previous version. Now he's not going to scrap everything, Jason Garrett. And start over. I mean, there's going to be a lot of what he did in the past brought over, hopefully a new age version, and hopefully he's adapted and evolved because that's really the key here, I think, with Jason Garrett. Now, 
when I'm looking at Joe Judge's staff, the offense, I have more confidence. I, I, the offensive staff in general, I'm pretty impressed with. Okay, Jason Garrett, we've gone over that before. Uh, they needed a strong uh, offensive coordinator guy who's done it before to sort of bring along Daniel Jones. They didn't want to bring in a new guy and have the, and, and sort of risk that with Daniel Jones. So that was a big part of that decision. They wanted a sort of a known quantity to work with Daniel Jones. And that's why Jason Garrett, a big reason why Jason Garrett's here, Jerry Shaplinsky, who comes from the Dolphins but beforehand was in the was in New England with Joe Judge as well. He's where he's kind of credited with helping uh Jacoby Brissett and Jimmy Garoppolo grow. Now he'll kind of be in that same boat with Daniel Jones. So, you know, the the, the, the running back coach, a uh, guy who's, I believe he's been in college his whole career, Burton Burns, uh, mostly with Alabama, a Nick Saban guy. So he'll be the running back coach. I like the Freddie Kitchens hire. He'll be the Giants' tight end coach, right? And the reason I like the Freddie Kitchens hire is because he, and, and Joe Judge mentioned this in the press release of announcing the coaches, he thinks that Freddie Kitchens could, thinks outside the box and he has good ideas. And I agree. He, he is. He does, he is willing to think outside the box. Maybe he didn't work as a head coach, but to have that input, a head coach who maybe Joe Judge can lean on a little bit for advice on, you know, how to operate as a head coach because Freddie Kitchens has that firsthand experience after his experiences in Cleveland. And just that think outside the box mentality. I think is good to have that with Jason Garrett, a guy who kind of was known for his stuff to get a little stagnant in Dallas. So to have some fresh ideas, I think is good. And I like that combination. Now, Jason Garrett has enough of his guys around, right? Uh, you have Mark Colombo, the offensive line coach comes from Dallas. He's supposed to be a, a real tough guy. Uh, a real, he could be hard on guys, not afraid to hide his opinion. So, you like those kind of guys. I mean, every, every staff needs a couple of those guys. The Giants have Mark Colombo on one side. Sean Spencer, who's uh, known as Coach Chaos on the defensive line on the other side, seems to be that kind of guy. So Garrett has Mark Colombo, and Joe Judge mentioned he wanted his offensive line coach and uh, his offensive coordinator kind of aligned. So those two guys now make sense. It seems like Jason Garrett definitely had input into that position then. Uh, his his opinion about offensive line coach mattered to Joe Judge, you would guess, if that's what he was looking for uh, in regards to the offensive guy, a line coach. So Mark Colombo comes along with Jason Garrett now. And then you have Derek Dooley as the senior offensive assistant. He worked in Dallas with Garrett for a while. Uh, offensive assistant is Stephen Brown. He worked with Garrett in Dallas for a while. So basically they have four guys from that Dallas staff a few years ago now on the Giants staff under Jason Garrett on the offensive side. The defensive side is where I'm a little more concerned. Patrick Graham, okay, one year as a coordinator, 30th ranked defense. We know he didn't have much to work with Miami, but that's why it's a crapshoot. We don't know if he's going to be a if he could be a good coordinator. That's an unknown. He doesn't have a track record of being a great coordinator yet. So that to begin with raises questions. The fact that the Miami Dolphins just let him go after one year for a lateral move raises more questions. 
And now his staff, this is a very uh, college-heavy defensive staff that he has underneath him, which I understand what Joe Judge is trying to do here. He wants and he prioritized teaching, teachers. He wanted guys, and as he explained it, he, they could explain to you not you know how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That it's not just you put peanut butter, jelly on a bread and slap it together, but that they can really teach you how to make a great peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That's what he was looking for in his assistants. That was the analogy that he used. But there's a lot of college guys on this side. And the, Sean Spencer, defensive line coach, comes from Penn State. Kevin Scherer, uh, inside linebackers coach, comes from Tennessee. Neither of them, I don't believe, have any NFL experience. Brett Bielma. Outside linebacker, coach, senior assistant, comes from New England, but he spent two years there. Majority of his career, head coach at Wisconsin, head coach at Arkansas. Again, big college influence of his career. Jerome Henderson is the one coach who really has uh, the pro experience. He's the defensive backs coach. Uh, And then you have guys like Jody Wright, defensive assistant, a guy that is very close to Joe Judge, knows him, I believe, from Alabama and Mississippi State. Primarily his experience, college. Mike Trier, defensive quality control coach, again, college, no NFL experience. So this defensive staff is very interesting, has a very college feel. And while that's good with on the teaching side, and what benefits them is the Giants do have a lot of really young players on defense, and you need to, you need teachers on that side. But this is still the pros. Dealing with professionals and dealing with college players is different. We'll see how it works. We don't know which of those coaches will be able to uh, sort of mold their approach and have it work with professionals. I'm sure some of them will be great. And I'm sure some of them might just be really be better college coaches. Because dealing with college kids is different. They're willing to you know, listen to everything you say. Once you get to the pros, it's a little different. You have to approach these guys and come at them from a little different angle. So we're going to see how that unfolds. And so the defensive side in general of the, the coaching staff has me a little more concerned than the offensive side with the Giants. Uh, so real quick, we're going to get to the cut list, right? The guys that could potentially be cut moving forward here before the season starts. Again, most of these are performance-related plus salary. I have how many guys on this list? One, two, three, four, five, four, four real guys, and then two others that I just want to mention. Okay, start with Alec Ogletree. He is set to make ten million dollars this year. Okay, they'll have six point seven million dollars in dead money if cut. But there could be a cap saving of five million, five point zero five million this year. It would seem that Alec Ogletree is unlikely to be a part of this Giants team moving forward, given the financial implications and the fact that, quite frankly, he hasn't played very well. I mean, he's probably a top ten paid middle linebacker. He's no hasn't played anywhere near top ten middle linebacker. Antoine Bethea, basically no dead money. Uh, was he a thirty five year old safety? Uh, Cap savings can be, two, or will be, if they release him, $2.75 million. Seems like a no-brainer. He did not play well this past year. Looks like he lost a step. Uh, he was a James Betcher guy, right? A guy that 
Betcher knew he could help teach his system from Arizona. So that's no longer needed. And same with Kareem Martin, who's another guy here. You could say $4.8 million by cutting Kareem Martin. That seems like, again, a no-brainer. A guy who they brought in to hopefully be a starter. He, he this past year, ended up being a sort of rotational outside linebacker. Doesn't seem, for $4.8 million, be stunned if he's back as well. And then the final one is Red Ellison. Uh, they cut him $5 million in cap savings. It seems like that is a likely move. Um I got to look up exactly what his salary is. Now, I wouldn't be surprised with Rhett Ellison if he comes back, but they try to lower his number. So that's what, that's what we're talking about with with Red Ellison there, a guy who kind of makes sense to lower his number but potentially bring back. So that's the, those are the four guys I look at as possible cuts. The other two I just want to bring up are Golden Tate, he got suspended last year, so that's a possibility. They can His money is not guaranteed anymore. I still think they're likely to bring him back. The Giants still think he could play. I don't think they're going to go after the, the, the signing bonus that they gave him. And there, Golden Tate is a guy that could be useful going forward. I think the Giants will go forward with him. And Nate Solder, another one. Uh, they're, they're, they could save $6.5 million if they cut him, but you have to, they have a $13 million in dead money if they do. That's a lot just to put on dead money. And then you have to replace him. Can you replace Nate Solder, an equal guy at $6.5 million? And then it's just a wash anyway. He's a good guy in the locker room to have as a leader. I just don't, I don't think that's a move that makes sense because the amount it's going to cost to replace him at, or, or even a right tackle is going to be expensive. So, all right, we're going to bring in our guest for this week, Chris Canny. On to the next one. Let's bring in ESPN New York. Host, uh, Super Bowl winner, right? An all-around good guy, Chris Canty, uh, because he's got some first-hand experience from a couple things that we're talking about in this specific podcast. So we really need his insight, right? Let's start with this, Chris, okay? So you come to the Giants. It's 2009, right? You yep. had just played against the Giants. You were with the Cowboys for a few, what, three three or four years? Four years, right? Four, four seasons, yeah. Okay. So you come to the Giants. What was your impression of Eli Manning at that point? Well, my impression at that point was that he was a quarterback that didn't do anything flashy. He was just solid. And obviously he was a guy that could make the throws in really big spots that ultimately could lead to your team competing for a championship. You know, seeing him up close and personal in that divisional round game in 2007 at Texas Stadium I mean, that's where you really have an appreciation for the kind of quarterback that Eli was. Just having the opportunity to be a part of a 13-win team, the number one overall seed in the NFC, and arguably the most talented team in the NFL during that season. To see Eli Manning be able to make the plays to give his team a chance to win it in the end, that was when I was impressed and I was sold that he was a true franchise quarterback. So before that, you guys, you guys thought you could, you know, you were going to be able to rattle him, I assume, in that game, and he, you weren't sure he had that in him, and then he just basically proved you wrong. Is that, is that how it went down? Well, yeah, that's how it went down, Jordan. I mean, if you go back to the second half of 2004 and in spots in 2005, people weren't sold on Eli Manning. Yeah, of course. Being the guy. I mean, the jury was still out on a draft day trade that Ernie Acorsi made, but I think 
seeing him in 2006 kind of grow into his own and then the team being able to win a championship starting out as a wild card, that to me is when everybody in the NFL took notice that Eli Manning is a quarterback that's good enough to win a championship, obviously, but a quarterback that you didn't want to have to face if you were in a must-win situation. So then you come to the Giants, right? You get there, you're in 2009. What did, was there anything that surprised him about you when you got there that, okay, maybe you just didn't, you don't get to see everything on a day-to-day basis, right? Like, so you get there in 2009. What did you learn? Well, I guess what I saw from Eli up close when I got into the building just confirmed my thoughts about him during the latter part of my tenure with the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, if you go back and look at the numbers, a lot of my career sacks, up until that point, joining the Giants came against Eli Manning. And I will say this, the guy is physically and mentally as tough as they come. And for football players, I think that's the ultimate compliment. If a guy is physically and mentally tough and he earns your respect, the fact that you can hit him over and over and over again and he kept picking himself up and he kept hanging in there to make the plays, to make the throws, that to me is what's impressive. Did he ever say anything to you? Uh, he was glad that I was on the, on, on their side and not not sliding up against them in those divisional games. I'm talking about when you, you when you that? sacked when you sacked him. What, what, did he ever say anything? What was what was his reaction? What, what did you, no, you uh, did you what, talk he trash? Never said, he never said anything to me. Of course, you had the Luke Pettigoats and the Richie Soyberts and and the David Deals of the world chirping a little bit, but Eli never said anything to me directly. Uh, but he didn't need to say anything because there was. There was nothing that I could do that was going to keep him out of the next play. Right. Even if you sacked him, hit him as hard as you could, it didn't matter. He was going to keep coming back for more. And to me, I mean, he exhibits a true football player. A lot of quarterbacks are pretty boys. None of them want to be hit, but clearly there are some that react differently as opposed to other guys. That two- Eli Manning was one of those quarterbacks that wasn't easy to rattle. And that was obviously evident that 2011 season, that championship game in San Francisco. I mean, oh, yeah, he took, he took an absolute beating. I mean, it was double-digit quarterback hits in that game between Ray McDonald and Justin Smith and Alden Smith and you know Patrick Willis, Navarro Bowman. Those guys took turns. Yeah, that was a sneaky, great Eli. defense, man. It was a great defense. It was a great front seven, and they got after it. But guess what? Eli Manning stood in there and took a beating and played an awesome game. I want to say he had over 30 completions and right around 300 yards. So, I yeah, mean, I think he had 290-something. Yeah, it was, it was as impressive a playoff performance as I've seen from a quarterback. Yeah, I mean, that that's the game that really stands out to me. When I think of, like, a game of Eli Manning, for some reason that's the first one that pops in my head. I know there's the two Super Bowls, but that game from Eli, I mean, I remember his – him just getting up with, like, turf in his face, his helmet, like, half off, and you're just like, wow, he's getting crushed in this game. And he still made enough plays to help you guys win. So that that was, that was you know, that's part of that legacy for sure. No, it is part of the legacy. But, but you know, Jordan, the game that stands out for me is that game when I was with the Dallas Cowboys in 2007. Because I, I believe I got a sack in the first half of that game, and we had a lead at halftime, yet somehow I knew – that we probably weren't going to come out on the winning end of it. I mean, if you ask anybody in football around that time, who would you rather have, Tony Romo or Eli Manning? A lot of people probably would have said Tony Romo. 
Right. But it, it was just something different about Eli, and you can't quite put your finger on it. You can't quantify it. It's something that's intangible. But, you know, you know, it probably is that, that cliche it factor that you hear a lot of people in and around sports talk about. Uh-huh. This guy has it. This guy doesn't have it. Eli Manning is a quarterback that has it. You're a hall. If you were a Hall of Fame voter, would there be any doubt in your mind? Because look, there's two sides to it, right? You get a guy, two-time Super Bowl MVP, really exclusive list, but then you look regular season, 500 record, and really never the best quarterback in a specific single season out of those 16 years, right? Because there was some great quarterbacks in the league at that time. So where where no, would you stand probably, on this? You're probably talking about the golden age of quarterbacking. Right. When Eli Manning played, the 2000s and 2010s is the golden age of quarterbacking. And to have a guy not once but twice lead two separate 4-0 runs on their way to a championship and play the way that he did, I, I don't know how you could keep him out of the Hall of Fame. I know a lot of people say, well, his regular seasons were pedestrian, but you can't separate the regular season from the postseason in terms of evaluating a player's entire career. You have to look at the full body of work. And to me, the full body of work says that he's a no-doubt Hall of Famer. Now, if you want to distinguish it and say, well, he doesn't belong uh, as a first ballot Hall of Famer, maybe you could make that argument. But there's no doubt in my mind that he's going to be putting on a gold jacket in Ken. That doesn't make sense and to me, though. I don't, I don't get, I don't get that one. It's so. I don't, I don't get that argument. I know this isn't you, but some people, like, he, I, I don't want to vote him in. For, either you're a Hall of Famer to me or you're not. You know, like you, you yeah. shouldn't either you vote for the guy or you don't vote for the guy. There shouldn't be like, well, he doesn't belong to go in the first time. I mean, Michael Strahan didn't make it in the first time. The, the process is a little crazy anyway. It just so happens to be like, all right, who's in your class of whether you make it the first time? But to me, it should be either you're a Hall of Famer or you're not a Hall of Famer. Not you're not that your view changes on a guy as you go along. That, that doesn't make any sense to me. The people that do do that. No, it doesn't make any sense to me either, Jordan. And if you look at the, the the career of Eli Manning and you look at the offenses that he's been a part of, he's had some really quality players on the offensive side of the ball. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you would have anybody that you would say, yeah, this guy is going to be a Hall of Famer one day. No. I, I don't think you say that. I mean, maybe if you're projecting Odell Beckham or Saquon Barkley, but that was toward the latter part of Eli's career. For sure. Throughout his career, there's nobody that you would point to and say, oh, he played alongside this Hall of Famer. I mean, even even Tom Brady had Randy Moss once upon a time throughout his career. Yep. I mean, Peyton Manning had Marvin Harrison and Edwin James. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, it, it baffles me that everybody wants to diminish the accomplishments of Eli Manning when clearly he was a player that made everybody else around him better. And to me, that's a true mark of greatness. No, for sure. I mean, I think what maybe the best player, the most accomplished player you ever played with, aside from maybe Odell, depending on how that turns out, is what Chris Snee in regards to all pros and Pro Bowls. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that just tells you, you know, what, what this guy, you know, did. I mean, he had good players around him, but there wasn't that greatness around him, right? I think yeah, that's what you're saying. Exactly. So, you know, you brought up the greatness and you t- brought up the critics. Now, I'm going to ask you something on the other side. You know, you jumped into our business where your job is to basically give your opinion and be honest. And in the latter years, you were, at least for an Eli Manning teammate, 
on the a little uh, considered on the harsh side, right? You you were a critic yeah. of him at times because he there were times where he didn't play well late in his career. Did you yeah. did anyone ever say anything to you about that? Did he ever say anything to you? Like how was that received in that regard? Because all his teammates we know generally love him, right? And they've all, yeah. especially when they're not in the media, they all obviously always have his back. But you were in a little different yeah. spot, so I wonder how you handled that and how if it was ever brought up to you and how that worked. Well, Eli is a professional. He's never said anything to me about it. When I've had a chance to, to rap with him, whether we're on the air or off air, um, you know, the Giants as an organization, they, they probably don't love the fact that uh, I'm a little bit candid and right. I try to be objective about what I'm seeing from them on the field year in and year out. Which is your job. Along with the territory. That comes along with the territory, Jordan. I believe that credibility is everything when you're a part of the media and you have a responsibility to your fans and the people that are listening and watching to try to be as truthful as you can based on your perspective, your experience. So that's what I try to do. But as far as my criticism goes with Eli Manning in the latter part of his career, it was strictly from a production standpoint versus the cost and then looking at the overarching problems that the Giants were dealing with. I felt like Eli Manning was no longer a part of the solution in getting things turned around. And if that's the case, then why are you paying him 20-plus million dollars on your salary cap to be a part of the equation? Right. I felt like you could have allocated resources elsewhere and you could have started to rebuild the team sooner as opposed to later. Right. No, I mean, I totally understand, but it's a a tough spot for guys that are – ex-teammates and know him personally but that to me is just so Eli right he, he wouldn't I yep. can't he would never like say anything to anyone like he I, I was t- saying before I remember going to uh, St. Anthony's you know Bob Hurley senior was holding a fundraiser or whatever because that school always needed money and Eli showed up and he did his thing and it, it's just so anti-star like that Eli Manning shows up by himself you know to these things no security no handlers, no PR, nobody. Just him walks in, mingles around, it, 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 and that just to me was so him, right? I mean, the way he acts, yeah. the way he 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 didn't want his own retirement press conference, from what people told me, to be all about him and to be this long speech that's all emotional. That's why he was so quick and short. And to me, that just seems to exemplify exactly what I saw from him. And it seems like you you agree and. You know, your experience with him was pretty much the same. Yeah, with Eli, it wasn't wasn't about him. It was about the team. And whatever was in the best interest of the team, he was going to go along with. Yeah. You know, a couple of years ago, when Ben McAdoo and Jerry Reese decided that they wanted to take a look at some of the younger quarterback options on the (laughs) roster, rather than deciding to start for the first half to give way to Geno Smith or Davis Webb, Eli said he would prefer that those guys have an opportunity to get the practice reps during the course of the week and get ready to be the starting quarterback so they could have the best chance to be successful. And then, you know, after the team made the announcement, you know, the next morning he's in the cafeteria going over plays with Davis Webb. Right. I mean, he's the quintessential teammate. Yeah. He's going to do whatever it takes or whatever the organization believe it takes in order for the team to be in a position to win. So I just, you know, I, you can never criticize Eli Manning from that standpoint. Um, he's not a, he's not a me guy. He's a we guy. Uh, and that has to, that has to factor into the equation as well. When you're, when you're considering 
his career and, and whether or not he's worthy of being inducted into the Hall of Fame. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, you hear the same thing from guys that were basically brought in to compete with him or take his job. You know, Ryan Nassib at one point, Davis Webb, uh, Kyle Loletta, and eventually Daniel Jones. I mean, they they all still got along very well with, and Eli helped them all out and was, answered all their questions. So I think that says a lot about him. Let's move real quick to the current Giants, right? Because you, like we mentioned before, you were with the Cowboys. Jason Garrett was there at the time. You then went to the Giants, played against Jason Garrett's offense. We talked about this off the air, but what is it about Jason Garrett that makes you think, knowing you know the offense that he ran back then, the way he called plays, that he's going to be a success? You know what? What are we now? Eight years later? Yeah. Well, I think Jason Garrett has always been viewed as a progressive offensive mind. Uh, his play design, sequencing of plays, I think he does a really good job. Uh, now, I know a lot of people will question, well, he wasn't necessarily that when he was the head coach, and, and sometimes the offense didn't look as good as it possibly could have been based on the talent that they have. But, again, the head coach is is a much different position than what he's going to be in with the New York Giants being the offensive coordinator and being responsible for the evolution of Daniel Jones. Right. So I, I have confidence that Jason Garrett will be good at this job. I mean, he did a great job with Tony Romo. He did a great job with Dak Prescott. You have to give him credit for the development of those two quarterbacks. And so I, I just I think in terms of finding somebody that can get this offense up to speed and take advantage of the talent that you do have, and more importantly get the most out of Daniel Jones, I think Jason Garrett will be a great fit. Right. And the fact that, like you said, he worked with those young quarterbacks before is a big reason that he's here right now. Uh, and the yeah. Just and he has knowledge of the division. He has working knowledge of the division. So I think that's a benefit. That's going to be of help to Joe Judge, a guy who's never been a head coach before. Jason Garrett has been in the job for a really long time. So he understands some of the things to, uh, in terms of what to expect, some of the blind spots for Joe Judge. So I think right. that's, that's also a resource for your new head coach to lean on. The interesting part is what will the NFC East look like? This is The whole division was basically revamped right now. It'll be this will be a very interesting division after it had the worst year it's ever had. It was the worst record-wise combined that this division has ever had since it was you know since the Arizona Cardinals left, right? And they put them out yeah. west. So yeah. it, this is, this division is going to be interesting moving forward to see where these teams are headed because three of the four teams have new head coaches. The other team basically you know shook up their offensive staff. So it's going to be a very intriguing division moving forward here. So if you're the Giants, right, you, you you go into free agency, what to you is your top priority? Like, where where are you looking? Where would you go? Well, it, 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 here's the thing, Jordan. I think you have to marry your plan for free agency with your plans for the draft. Right. And understanding what's going to be available to you, what are areas of strength in this draft, what are areas of strength in free agency, because they're not always the same year in and year out. Mm-hmm. But I think some key areas for the Giants to address, first and foremost, the offensive line. To me, to me, that's like buying homeowner's insurance when you buy a new house. And, you know, you bought the new house in Daniel Jones. Now you have to try to protect it, and you're protected by having a really good offensive line in front of them. You'd put that I mean, over, you put that over pass rusher right now? No, I put that over pass rusher right now just from the standpoint, Jordan, that this defense is pieces away. 
I don't think your offense is that far away if you have the right scheme and you significantly upgrade the offensive line. No, I agree. You like the skill, yeah. you like the skill positions that they have mm-hmm. between Tate, Slayton, and Shepard, Evan Ingram, who should be motivated coming off of this past year and dealing with injury, and then Saquon Barkley, one of the best all-purpose backs in the NFL. Your offense should be pretty good if you can get the offensive line fixed. So to me, that's the priority because in order for a young quarterback to develop properly, you got to be able to protect him. No, absolutely. And yeah, that's definitely a problem because they, they need to fix that that you know tackle spot big time. Big time. Both yeah. sides. Both sides. I just feel like the offensive line will give you more return on investment in the short term than just getting a pass rusher. I'm not saying that you ignore the defense. Right. You do need a pass rusher. You, you do need to revamp your entire linebacking core because I think all of those guys are replacement level right now at best. Right. No, so, no doubt. There are a lot of pieces, and you gotta you got to continue to address the secondary, particularly the safety spot. So I, I think that there's, there's a lot of room for improvement with that Giants defense. But right now I think the more pressing need is the offensive line because of Daniel Jones. Interesting. No, I mean, I, I could totally understand that. But one of the players we have talked about on the defensive side that I know you like is Yann- Yannick Ngakwe, if that happens. Our, yes. our ESPN uh, Jaguars reporter actually predicted that they would franchise tag him, which would be a big blow to the Giants potentially, and really that whole you know pass rush, edge rush market in general. But yeah. what what is it about him when you look at him and you say, well, this is a guy that they really should make an effort to get if he's available? Well, Jordan, I just look at what Yannick Nkakwe did at Maryland. He was a highly effective, highly productive pass rusher there, big sack numbers. He came into the NFL, and he did the same exact thing from his rookie season on. And so, to me, when I'm looking at guys that can get after the quarterback, I like guys that can consistently do it. Like, I think a very underrated pass rusher in the last decade or so in the NFL was Elvis Doomerville. And mm-hmm. he's not necessarily ideal size you know, high-speed weight, all those different things. But one thing that Elvis Dumerville was consistent with was the sack production. And right now, the Giants need a guy that can give you double-digit sacks year in, year out, a guy that can routinely win one-on-one pass rush situations. they got to have that guy. They really didn't have that guy last year. You did have Marcus Golden, and he gave you something. But I'm not sure that Marcus Golden could have a repeat performance of that. If the Arizona Cardinals thought Marcus Golden was that guy, they never would have got rid of him. Right. I, I believe that Yannick Ngakwe is one of the premier edge rushers in our game. He does come with some baggage. There are some character issues. But I think because of the caliber of player that you're getting, it would be well worth the risk. So given the option, Jadavian Clowney or Yannick Ngakwe, where are you going? I like Ngakwe. Less risk with the injury history. Uh, less variance in terms of production. Uh, I think both players are incredibly scheme diverse, so that's a wash. Both of them are versatile, but uh, I just think that you can depend on Yannick and Guacque for the life of the contract that it would take in order to get him here. I'm not sure what you get from Jadavion Clowney when you give him the huge guarantees. Yeah, that's something that's out there. You, you, he wants that money. He wants that, what happens once he gets it? You never know with these guys. Hey, Put been, the bag in front of him. I've been, wa- I've been watching him since he was in high school in Rock Hill, South Carolina. That motor, that motor ain't always running on high. Just going to leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, ironically, and I don't think most people realize this, Chris Canty is from Charlotte, North Carolina, right? Went to Charlotte Latin High School. 
which if people might recognize is also the same high school that Daniel Jones went to. I don't think yeah, most people I don't think most people realize that about you. Well well here's the thing, Jordan. I'm actually from the Bronx. Right. And I went to high school in North Carolina. Right, right. So I right. went to Charlotte Latin my junior and senior year of high school and I played for Larry McNulton McNulty, who happened to be the high school coach for Daniel Jones as well as Charlotte Latin. It's a pretty uh, it's a know, pretty nice little connection. Interesting. No, it's a great connection and and I know some of the people in his family they're friends with some of my friends in the Carolinas. Um, but, you know, the, the pedigree that he comes from um, is what gives me confidence that Daniel Jones is going to be a staple for the Giants franchise for years to come. You know, and a lot of criticism, a lot of criticism from Dave Gettleman about a lot of the decisions that he's made since he's been the general manager. But the one that he got right. Is Daniel Jones. Yeah, a lot of it's warranted, but he deserves he deserves credit for that pick. There's one thing, if you look at the real big picture of the Giants right now, the one thing that Dave Gettleman has accomplished and gotten right, it seems, at least, he has a chance to have that franchise quarterback in place. Yeah, and guess what? If you're a general manager and you get that one right, <laughs> it gives you a little. It gives you a little more margin for error. It really does. It really does. You get that right, everything sort of kind of comes into place around that. Chris Canty, we appreciate it. You can catch him every day, ten to one, on ninety-eight seven ESPN in New York. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, appreciate it, Chris. Always appreciate your time. Always appreciate your insight. On to the next one. Let's go into a little Jordan on a beat here. This is the part of the show where I tell you what it's like to cover the Giants, the NFL, or really just football in general, right? And uh, what I'm going to talk about here is Eli Manning real quick and what it's been like covering him and then get into uh, what it was like to find out that he was going to retire and then breaking that story along with uh, my coworker, Dan Graziano. So let me just do a real my Eli experience, right, of what it was like covering him. Uh, true professional. I mean, Eli Manning stood there at his locker. He would stand there every day when he was available and do sort of like three different rounds of interviews. And as a person who's in the media, you totally respect this, right? He doesn't want to do this stuff. Nobody wants to do it. But he still stands there, especially after losses. He would be the, he would talk only on, if the Giants lost, he would make himself available on Mondays. Right? And take sort of take the bullets, take the blame. If they won, he would let other people go and he didn't he didn't he kind of just blended into the background, often wasn't available on Mondays, because he would let others take the credit. Again, that's just what you're getting when you're talking about Eli Manning. And then when he's standing there at his locker, okay, it was sort of like three rounds. He does the first round, it's the cameras and everybody together. And then the cameras sort of filter out. Then he does the writers, okay, the, the the beat reporters, and then he takes questions from them in a separate group with with fewer or no cameras there, and then it's sort of like the the little sort of one on one ish session where if you really want to ask him a question or something specific that's like off the grid, you can ask him that. So I mean, by the time it was all done, it was like thirty minutes, and you would rarely ever hear Eli Manning snap or say anything negative. There was a couple times throughout his career, really just a couple. I mean, I, first of all, I, I showed up in 2013. And so I'm only talking about I've been there half his career. But as far as I know, he got mad at a report once. Um, 
by Ian Rappaport of NFL Network, actually, about him wanting to be, I think it was him wanting to be the highest paid player more than Aaron Rodgers at one time. So he said something at a press conference once about that. He said something about, he said something to me after I wrote the story about the decline of Eli Manning. He like one of my questions. His, you know, this is Eli Manning being mean was he, he, not even mean, but this was, you know, him getting upset of saying something like I asked him a question and after that, after that story and he was like, I don't know. Why don't you tell me? Like that, that's about as much of a reaction as you were going to get from Eli Manning. Like you rarely saw him get upset. Now, there wasn't always great times. I mean, I came on and like I said, there's like two parts of his career. I come on in 2013. Okay. And he's having an, I show up on, I, first game I ever covered was on the, as a beat reporter was for NJ.com. I show up. It's the game. It's like week six or something. They hadn't won at that point. Maybe seven. Monday night football, Minnesota Vikings. Josh Freeman plays one of the worst games ever. I, you know, introduced myself to Eli. My first impression, actually, I remember this, was that Eli Manning was a lot skinnier than I thought he would be. Is that, uh, he was wearing like the, he wears like the, the tight fits, thin suits with the skinny tie and everything about him just looked skinnier than I envisioned for some reason. Uh, and that was a rough year. If you remember, I mean, he was not good that year. It was 27 interceptions that year. Uh, got, uh, Kevin Gilbride basically fired, stepped aside, pushed aside, whatever you want to call it. So it didn't, that was a tough year for him. And then 14, 15, he kind of built back up under McAdoo. 14, he started slow and got better as the season went along. 15 was his best season that I was there for. And then 16, they made the playoffs, but you could tell something wasn't right offensively. He didn't have a great year. And then I guess that was really just the precursor to 17, 18, 19 when it, we were getting towards the end. Now, granted, the teams they had around him at the time, especially in, I think 13, 14 might have been the worst lines he had out of all of them. They were never good for that time. And that's really what he needed at that point of his career. He was never, uh, a guy who was going to move around a ton. Uh, he was never super mobile. So he needed good lines at that point of his career. And that's really where they whiffed and weren't able to get the players that they needed for him. But, uh, generally just a low key guy. That was a good guy to cover. Like I mentioned before, the fact that he would show up to this stuff by himself, I don't think people realize how rare that is. I mean, everybody has handlers, PR people doing everything for them, with them. You know, the the Super Bowl, I mean, PR people are shuttling you around. No, Eli Manning, he just walks around by himself. You know, he'll take care of it by himself. He doesn't need anybody. That kind of just exemplified uh, what kind of person he was and how he went about his business. So um, it was pretty impressive. So down at the Senior Bowl a couple weeks ago and start hearing rumblings about some sort of uh, press conference or something that's going to happen on Friday. So this is what, uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, whatever it is. And uh, at that point, you have to it, – this is not an easy thing. You can't just go shoot it by anybody, right? You have to think strategically, okay? So we know – we hear about these rumors that this might be happening, that he might be retiring, that there seems to be some sort of press conference or something being set up. And you have to think about who you can trust in this situation to ask if this is happening and, and make sure you're right and then 
not have them, you know, go back and start telling Eli, the Giants. People were – then everything starts getting set in motion, starts moving quicker. And next thing you know, you didn't report anything yet, and it's already out there. So you have to be strategic and careful, and you run it by the right people, and we finally do, and we feel good about it. And then – we want to make sure that Eli knows, right? You know, that we want to be 150% right on this. Make sure he knows, okay, hey, we, we know you're having this. You're set to retire. We want to just conf- triple, triple confirm it and make sure you're right. And this is, this is all time consuming. So I'm walking around Lad Peebles Stadium in Mobile, Alabama, right? And we know Eli's going to retire and we're going through this whole process. But at the same time, you want to, you don't, you're hoping someone else doesn't get it before you, right? So I'm looking at, uh, Ian Rappaport and Mike Garofolo from the NFL Network. Mike, obviously, very, he covered the Giants. He's super plugged in. Uh, you're worried about him, them getting it. And I'm looking at them. I'm literally, you know, pacing around the field, walking laps and looking at them at times just to see, like, hey, you think they they have a, they heard. You think they heard these whispers and know and, and are working on this as well and are going to beat us to it. So these are the kind of things as a reporter when you're trying to break news that you're looking at, that you're you're worried about losing the story or not not breaking the story. And uh, so finally, we you know we we got it locked down. We have it set. We you know we shoot it to our news day. The whole process that we have to go through at ESPN to get it, and we did get it out first, and we had it. And this is why you have to be strategic, right? The Giants were—this is, I don't know, late in the afternoon almost on, I don't know, Wednesday, I think it was. The Giants weren't going to put it out until Thursday morning. It was supposed to last until Thursday morning. The announcement was going to come, or or there was a then there'll be a press conference on Friday. Maybe I'm off by a day. Maybe it was Tuesday. Maybe it was Wednesday morning. It was coming out. Whatever it was. But anyway, so, and these are how quickly things work. Obviously, the Giants were ready. And so that we get out the story. We break the story. Eli's going to retire from Dan Graziano and myself. And I don't know, half hour later, 20 minutes later, the Giants have everything ready. They say Eli Manning is going to retire. They put everything out. So if we had gone through the wrong people and they got it, who knows? They might have put it out even early. And before we got to it, next thing you know, your scoop, poof, gone. So that's how it works. That, that, that this is this is what it's like when you're trying to break a story and and you're you're on top of it. But sometimes it blows up in your face, like Odell Beckham. I'm sitting there on the phone talking to somebody about the Odell Beckham trade, and I'm they're basically telling me, look, this seems like it's going to go down. Um, you know, they they Odell uh, is going to get traded to the Browns. And they're going to get back uh, Zeitler and – no, it wasn't Zeitler at the time. It was, and they're going to get back a draft pick, a first-round pick, or two two first-round picks, and a safety. And the safety, the safety, they were saying. And as I'm sitting there on the phone with someone, and this is going down, Mike Garofolo reports, this isn't a joke. The Giants are trading Odell Beckham. So there's a lot that goes into it. Sometimes – you end up losing out. Sometimes you end up winning, but you just, you just, you hope to get a few, a few big ones here or there. And for me, uh, and I appreciate that Dan trusted me and we worked together. He's a great teammate. This, to be honest with you, was probably the biggest story I ever broke. The fact that Eli Manning is, is going to retire. Uh, so there we go. That's sort of how it happened. And that's the end of this episode of Breaking Big Blue.
I'm your host, Jordan Ronan, ESPN, ESPN.com. Don't forget, like us, rate us, subscribe, all podcast platforms. Breaking Big Blue is available. Tell your friends. Grow this podcast. Tell me what you want to improve. You can email me. You can reach me Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, email. You know how to find me. I'm Jordan Ronan. You're listening to Breaking Big Blue. See you next time.